But why should we gain from Christ's reward? Why should his righteousness be our righteousness? Why should his atonement on the cross count as our atonement? Why should his resurrection and his glory become ours? Why should his kingdom be our kingdom? Why should his spirit be given to us? But we cannot give an answer except that you, God, are gracious. You, God, are loving. You, God, are generous. You, God, you're lavish in your gifts to your people. All the answers are in you. We give you praise this morning. We give you praise our hearts, our souls shout. We thank you, Lord, for how you allow us to play a part in your family, in, in your kingdom, in your mission. We give you thanks, Lord, for campus outreach. We thank you for Kayla and Alex. Thank you for raising them up for this great work. We thank you for the student leaders and members of campus outreach. And we give you praise for uh, this summer's Alpha Project and your time in Romans 8. Cause, O oh Lord, the beautiful words of that chapter to bear much fruit in the hearts of the students. Well, we do pray for those who, students who don't know you yet, that you would save them, bring them to yourself through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Cause them to lay it all down for Jesus. And live for you. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bear much, much more fruit on the campus as they, uh, Lord, come back next fall and begin the work of evangelizing the campus and discipling the students, Lord. We pray for revival on how the universities campus. We pray that you would send forth your gospel with powerful pleasure. And we pray for your preached word here, not just this morning, but for the weeks ahead and the years ahead to tarry. We pray for the series that will start next week, the fear of the Lord. Lord teach us to reverence you, to stand in awe of you. Teach us, O oh Lord, to honor you in such a way that it would be our great delight and joy. Bless Pastor Dennis as he prepares to bring your word and feast your people. And Pastor George after him. Our brother Alex Woods and our, our, our brother Michael Gordon. We, we pray for Max Reese. We ask the Lord that you live Andrew Walker. We pray for all these brothers and others who will come and, and say, Thus saith the Lord to us. Give us ears to hear. Give them joy as they prepare. Give them freedom as they preach. Give the word alive to us. Do that this morning as we look at Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Fix our eyes upon him. Let us behold him. All of his humanity and all of his beauty and all of his glory. In this agony, 
And Mrs. Ryan, let us be called to you and let us love you. Help us to work in prayer. In Jesus' name. So I'm a big fan of Hamilton the musical. You guys don't know how many weeks I'm working to try and put a Hamilton reference into the sermon. It's had a lasting impact on my life. It surprises me. It's my theme song in the morning. Uh, this, this week, I, I have some days like everybody else where I struggle with getting it in here. And uh, I'm struggling sometimes. The thought occurred to me, put on the soundtrack. <laughs> soundtrack in my life. By the time I get to rise up, I'm good. I'm good. In one of the ways, Hamilton has had a lasting impact on me because it's given me uh, a newfound interest in the history of this country, and particularly in the sort of revolutionary era, the 1700s, 1800s, things of that sort. So after I watched it, I, I started reading uh, Turnout's biography of George Washington. I got really fascinated with Washington and his really leaders of that era. I was fascinated, for example, with George Washington's interaction with Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold was a military leader and a fort that Washington depended on. And at a certain point, Washington stopped getting reports from Arnold. And he was trying to figure out what was happening. And so he, during one military expedition, decided that uh, he was fleeing by the fort and checking in on Benedict Arnold. Now, Arnold's an interesting character. He and his young wife, they real boots. They like things. And he lived it up in this fort while the fort is actually declining. And that's why he hasn't been sitting in courts. And so he gets wind of the fact that General Washington and his company is going to swing by the fort on their way further south. And, and Arnold's like, you know what? I need to do it. And so Washington comes to the fort. Arnold ghosts them, leaves his wife there, leaves the general there, takes as much as he can, tries to run away. And it's then when he's caught that they find out that Benedict uh, Arnold was a traitor. That he was a spy for the British. Washington was shocked. He was, he was speechless. His trust had been deeply betrayed. And that's why the name Benedict Arnold today is synonymous with traitors, isn't it? In fact, there's only one traitor's name that outranked Benedict Arnold in fame. That's Judas. Judas's betrayal of Jesus is the greatest betrayal of all time. There's a difference between what happened to Washington and what happened to Jesus. Unlike Washington, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. And unlike the war for independence, which was on shaky ground because of betrayals like this, Judas's betrayal actually accomplished God's victory over sin and death and the devil. Beloved, every betrayal is not final. The betrayal of the Son of God is suffering, achieved. Our salvation. In our passage this morning, we're going to get a glimpse at that suffering, that pattern. We're going to get a glimpse at the beginning, the singing of God's people. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. If you turn there, if you have a note taking type, the sermon has two points this morning. 
divide this text roughly in half. First point is this, that the Lord prays while the disciples sleep. See that in verses 32 to 42. The Lord prays while the disciples sleep. Second point, Judas betrays while the Lord wakes. Judas betrays while the Lord wakes. Verses 43 to 52. Look with me in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And Cain found him sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Did you not watch one time? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking the rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd of swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given him a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away of God. And he came, and looked to him once and said, Rabbi, this they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against the robber with swords and clubs to capture them? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And all left him fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away. The Lord bless his word. The Lord prays, the disciples sleep. Colin taught us so well last week in verses 12 and 31 about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper uh, was a Passover meal with his disciples. And Christians have traditionally called that the last supper. It's the last time the Lord eats with his disciples. During the meal, the Lord predicts that one of his disciples will betray him. But who knew the betrayal would come so quickly? The Lord and disciples, verse 32, they moved to Gethsemane. Gethsemane is at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. And on this night, Jesus asked most of his disciples, you see there, sit here 
while I pray. And just as he did during the transfiguration and many of his most intimate and, and powerful moments, he takes with him uh, three people, Peter, James, and John. They go a little farther with him. And it's with Peter, James, and John, the Lord really is sharing his most intimate and human part of himself. They see him as verse 33 puts in the book. Greatly distressed and troubled. The Lord says to him in verse 34, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. I don't know, but this might be the most vulnerable look at Jesus that we see. It's full of humanity. And I wonder why you don't see more images of Jesus distressed, troubled, and sorrowful in our depiction. Why do we see him in those famous pictures, praying in Gethsemane, looking up to the sky with this wonderfully calm and peaceful face? He's greatly distressed. He's greatly sorrowful, even unto death. And it's in this moment that we also see the, the moving aspects of true friendship. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a, a friend loves at all times. A brother is made for a person. Jesus loves Peter, James, and John. Enough to share with his friends his sorrows and distress. And Peter, James, and John, well, they, they love Jesus too. And they are they are sharing in the Lord's adversity. This is friendship. We all need friendship, especially in our darkest moments and hours. I mean, if Jesus needed others in his hour of suffering, how much more do we need others in our hours of suffering? But Jesus has come to Gethsemane to pray. Verse 35 says he separated himself for a little privacy, going a little farther. Then notice he fell on the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass with him. Then he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The hour here refers not to a specific time in the cross. First, in the entire period of Jesus' arrest and trial and beating and crucifixion and death, his atonement for sins. This is the hour for which he has come. And yet, the Lord wants to be out. It's the hour for which he has come, and yet, he wants a way out. So frightening is the prospect of the crucifixion. So terrifying is the idea of suffering for the sins of the world. So, so shaking, so sorrowful, so distressing is the notion that he would die for all the sins that we commit. That even though this is why he has come, and this is his appointed hour, the Lord of glory bows in Gethsemane and says, if it is not for me, Let's do this some other way. Let's work this out with a plan B. Verse 35, impossible that this hour pass through me. Put a prayer. Put a human prayer. I 
Have you had a situation like this? Where you have been at the same time certain of God's call, certain of God's placement of you in a situation, certain even of God's presence with you, and at the same time say, God, this is hard. Let's do it another way. Don't you have a ram in the bush? Perhaps like Jesus in Gethsemane, you have been struggling about the difference between what you know to be true about God and what you are currently experiencing in Notice the, the contrast here. He first sort of says, almost as a rhetorical question, if possible, you know, let this hour pass from me. But then he answers the theological question in his prayer, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. He knows that God is omnipotent. He knows that God is all-powerful. He knows that God has the ability to do whatever he wants to do. As the Bible says, he sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. That's the theological truth that is rushing into Jesus' view as he's on his face, on his knees, in Gethsemane, thinking about the cup, which is a symbol for God's wrath. God's judgment on the world of sin that he is about to drink in the crucifixion and the atonement. Hope things are possible for you. And notice this is not a cold prayer. It begins with an hour. Hour being term, which means roughly dead. Oh. The distress of this moment is rushing upon him with so much force that he, he falls back into his heart language apparently. Falls back on the knowledge of God as his father and the tenderness that exists in that relationship. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. See, it's knowing the distance between those two things. Truth about God and the cup that he has to be that causes the dilemma. It's almost like he's saying, if you love me, why not spare me from the suffering? If you love me, why not give me an easier way? I love the way one Bible scholar puts it in his commentary. He writes this, Gethsemane presents us with a uniquely human interplay between the heart of the Son and the will of the Father. Jesus' prayer is not the result of calm absorption into an all-encompassing divine presence, but an intense struggle with the frightful reality of God's will and what it means to see fully submit to He's struggling with the knowledge of God's will and what it means to submit to it. He's struggling with the knowledge of God's will and what it means to submit to it. Anybody else know that? Anybody else know what God's will is in a particular situation and you look at it like, oh, I don't know. If 
by submitting this, this is going to hurt. That's why Jesus says three times, remove the cup. Remove the cup. Remove the cup. Three times, heaven remains silent. It's the tension between knowing God's character, His Father, His Adam, one who loves us, and God's goodness, His power, is the tension between that knowledge and the knowledge of our circumstances. It really bothers us sometimes. And there are temptations in this world. Real temptations. We can be tempted, for example, to think that God does not love us. We can be tempted to think that God doesn't care about us. We can be tempted to think that God is angry with us. You can be tempted to think, I might as well stop praying. You can be tempted to try taking over ourselves. You can be tempted to hopelessness, despair, depression. We can be tempted to think we're not even Christians. Low key. A lot of the Christian life, beloved, has lived in that tension between knowing the truth about God and knowing situations that are quite painful. The real test is how do we resolve the tension? How do we work out the struggle? And I want to suggest to you from my Lord's life this morning that the best way to resolve this tension is to prayerfully submit to God's will. To prayerfully submit to God's will. That's what we see Jesus do in verse 36. Yet not what I will, but what you will. One Bible scholar puts it this way. According to Mark, the decision to submit to the Father's will causes Jesus, notice this, causes Jesus greater internal suffering than the physical crucifixion of Golgotha. The cross is a matter of the heart before it is a matter of the hand, a matter of the will, before it is an empirical reality. He said that the first battle that Jesus has to win is with his own heart. The first battle that Jesus has to win is even before properly bowing to God's way, God's way. And that's how the Lord escapes the very human condition of doubt, discouragement, fear, anger, pain. And that's how we, beloved, if we are Christians, are eventually saved through Jesus' submission to the Father's will. And he drink that cup for us. Listen, beloved. Our prayers may not deliver us from suffering, but they can bring us into God's will. If we want His will more than we want our comfort, then we will submit our will to the Father's will in prayer. And in truth, this is perhaps the main reason for prayer. 
not to bid the farmers to our good, but for us to conform to his will, to discover what he means. So let me give you a couple of applications as we look at Jesus and prayer. Before very quick things, I'll just mention them. Number one, let us learn to pray as an act of submission, not just petition. But our prayers not just be this homily and asking, but this effort, the power to perform what God wants. Number two, perhaps you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. I want to encourage you to submit your will to God by believing in Jesus. The Bible is really clear throughout the New Testament that this is God's will for us, that, that we would believe in Jesus. That, that we would not go about trying to live with faith in ourselves alone or live with faith in others alone or faith in some other thing, all of which would be idolatry, but that we would come to know the one true and living God through the only way we can know him, which is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who right here is preparing himself to die for you, to die on God's cross, to drink the cup of God's wrath, of God's angry, righteous judgment against our sin, so that we wouldn't have to drink that cup, so we wouldn't have to suffer his judgment, but so that we might live forever through faith in Christ. It is God's will for you to believe in Jesus and you submit to the Forsake all other idols, all other religions, and worship God through faith in Jesus. If you would like to do that, we would like nothing more than to help you do that. So stick around after the service, talk with us if you have questions, ask your questions. Um, we'd love to start a Bible study with you one on one. Maybe the next several weeks, just get together and read Romans 8 or other passages of the Bible and, and encourage you in the knowledge of God. Help you discover His love. And you might call it the path. You might know His grace. Let us know if we can do that. A third thing, if we are believers, then we should submit our will to God. We are struggling between His will and our desire. Oh, beloved, there's so many places where our desires seem to be at odds with His will. And the answer, very simple, is to submit to His will, put to death our desires, live for Him. And just as an umbrella application, we should submit our will to God in all things. Just in case we're thinking there's some special thing that we can keep over here to ourselves. If he is Lord, if he's Lord of our entire life, we to submit our entire life to him. This is how Jesus prays. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. This is the kind of prayer that we are invited to as God's. Now, verse 37 says that while Jesus prayed, the disciples slept. Jesus asked Simon Peter, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? You can almost hear the disappointment in the question here. Lord, it's an hour of his greatest distress, and his friends are asleep instead of watching out for him in prayer. Verse 38, the Lord repeats the charge. Is there? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit in need is filling, but the flesh is weak. 
As Sister Eva read Mark chapter 13, 32 to 36, as we were seeking, Jesus, since that point, has been telling the disciples to, to watch, to be alert, to stay woke, if you will. That's the main posture that the Christian disciple in these last evil days is meant to have in watchfulness and alertness, looking for the coming of Christ. And we should, as an application of watchfulness, be prayerful. And the reason is plain, Jesus tells them there, so that we do not enter into temptation. Temptation most often comes upon Christians. When we ain't looking, we're not watching. And, and Jesus explains further that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's giving us a little theological anthropology, a fancy term for uh, the Bible's teaching about the nature of man. The human beings have two aspects to our nature we are one part spirit and one part flesh. To the spirit belongs our will, our intellect, our emotions. To the flesh belongs our, our physical body, yes, but also our, our desires. The spirit and the flesh war against each other in the Christian. Our spirit wants to worship and to serve God. But our flesh is weak. It's limited. It's corrupted. It's indecisive and easily distracted. And sometimes the weak flesh Overpowered the will of the spirit. That's the human struggle. Flesh overpowering the spirit is perhaps the most frustrating thing about the Christian. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter The good that I would do, I do not find myself doing. That that I don't want to do, I, I find myself doing. Who will deliver me from this wretched body? Is it? Fundamental part of the Christian life. Notice verse 42 times Jesus comes to them to wake them up. In verse 40 says, Their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to do. You imagine them slumping against the tree, head rolled back, bowed wide open, snore. And I love the part where Jesus comes to them. And he said they didn't know how to answer. You know how the folks wake you up out there, Chris? They deep in it. They're tired. They're so tired of probably this morning. Can I come back to this issue of friendship for a moment? Friends are not only the ones we share our own friends. Friends are also people who love us, but fail us. Friends are also people who love us, sometimes fail us. If you're looking for the kinds of friends who never fall asleep, but they should be proud of can I just point out that Jesus' three closest friends all fell asleep on him? Not once, not twice. Three times in the same night, during Jesus' greatest time of agony, his, his friends were knocked out. What do we do with that? Well, we have to understand that our most loyal friends are still just weak, spirits, and weak flesh. 
And we have to understand that, that our best effort to be someone's friend, talking about ourselves now, we're just always looking around at the others now, we're talking about ourselves now. Our best efforts to be someone's friend, we're only ever going to be people with willing spirits and weak flesh. Maybe that we need to get rid of, yes, get rid of toxic friendships, manipulative friendships, sinful friendships, and things of that sort. But we would be wise not to become perfectionists and legalists in our understanding of friendship so that we treat anyone who has any weakness as if they don't love us, as if they're not true. Peter, James, and John are true, and they will prove themselves to be true by giving their lives to Jesus, but they're just people. Big people. Clay people. Inconsistent. Tired. Love and beauty deserve better friends. And we're not likely to be better friends than the Jesus had. So. And the Lord finds them sleeping a third time in verse 41. The Lord tells them the hour has come. They've got all the rest they're going to get. He says there, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, the word that strikes me this morning, uh, most profoundly, the word that just resonated with me all this week, is that two-minute word, us. The Lord says, rise, let us be going. Now, hear this. Though his friends fail him in his hour of need, the Lord Jesus still included them in this most important part of his life. I'm trying to help somebody right now. I don't know who it is. Christians, we have a word for what we're seeing here in this verse, and that word is grace. The Lord does not crush them. He does not rebuke them sharply. He does not cancel them in anger. He does not leave them behind to go alone. Those are our self-righteous, perfectionistic ways we sometimes treat our friends in their weakness when they disappoint us. Not Jesus. With the word us, the Lord wraps his arms around about his miracles. It keeps them in his grace and love. I want to ask you a very practical question this morning. When our friends tell us we need friends, we're we not there when we need them. They fail to pray and to watch and to remember you. Are you and I the kind of friends who respond with grace and inclusion or with condemnation and rejection? When a brother or sister in the church fails to be a perfect brother or sister in church out of weakness, are we the kind of church members that respond with grace and inclusion or with condemnation and judgment? Or are we the kind of spouses that respond with grace and inclusion when our spouses fail us? Or do we respond with condemnation and judgment or in the workplace? Are we the kinds of Work colleagues or the kinds of bosses who, who meet every failure with condemnation and rejection will be the kind of people who walk with the aroma of Christ in grace and While Jesus prayed, the disciples slept. While the disciples wrestled with fatigue, Jesus wrestled with the Father's will. 
And while he was submitted to the Father's will, he gathered together with him, his failing weak disciples, and the blind Now, the scene changes beginning in verse 43. Brings us to our second point. Judas betrays while the Lord waits. Judas betrays while the Lord waits. See how the scene changes in verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Now, we know who Jesus is, and told right here he was one of the twelve. But back in verse 32, Jesus is already, or 42, excuse me, Jesus is already referred to him as my betrayer. Mark reminds us again that Judas was one of the twelve. He was one of Jesus' closest followers and original apostle. That's what makes this betrayal so painful. It's not like a stranger is betrayed. Jesus says in the Psalms, my own familiar friend who gives his hand comes in the hands of a friend. Now, this might be a good place to make a distinction between weakness and wickedness. The disciples sleep because they are weak. Being embodied human beings, being people with this fallen flesh, this fallen body, they have limits. That's weakness. We all have it. But Judas acts not out of weakness, but out of wickedness. He sold the Lord out for 30 pieces of silver because he was angry about what was happening with the treasury. He sold the Lord out for 30 pieces of silver because he was acting out of a wicked impulse. Sin drove Judas to betray him. And he's not only a betrayer, he's also a coward. Notice he comes with the full force of the Jewish religious leaders, their soldiers, and the mob. Mark must be somewhat disgusted with Judas because he, he can barely use his name. He just keeps referring to him as the betrayer. The, betrayer. the name that must not be spoken. It is Judas betrayed the Lord. In the Middle East then, in the Middle East today, men customarily greet each other with a kiss on the cheek, often three kisses, often with sides. It's a sign of friendship and hospitality. It's a sign of, of, of love and affection. I'm, I'm no threat, but rather I, I welcome you into my heart. It is a sign of tenderness. And everything tender can be corrupted by fear. A kiss on the cheek. Between men, between friends, becomes a trap. A sign of affection becomes a sign of attack. An everyday greeting becomes a once in a lifetime trap. Everything trustworthy and simple can become part of deception. This is how devastating to God's world is seen. Takes even the most beautiful things to bring them into the service. The wickedness. You sometimes underestimate how far reaching the sin is, don't you? It's so far reaching it distorts the symbol of the 
and if sin can distort love in its symbols, how deeply does it distort our thinking? It is no friend to us. Jesus, Judas, excuse me, is carrying out his Jesus waits on the door. As soon as Judas kisses him, the mob sees Jesus at verse 46. Now Peter is awake. Uh, he could stay awake and pray, but he's ready to fight. I need some friends like that too. We're going to have to pray for you, but they'll fight. I'll buckle up with you. They'll with you. Verse 47 says, one of those who stood by to the sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Mark doesn't record his name, maybe because of the, the, the family relationship that he has with Peter, but the other gospel tells us that it is Peter. And the servant's name is Malchus. He cuts Malchus' ear off. Jesus tells him, basically, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. That's a miracle right there in front of everybody. He heals and he puts the man ear back on. Now, that should have made some people step back and think. This man just cut his ear off, and Jesus just tapped it back on. <laughs> I mean, we all lost it when Mike Tyson bought Ben Hogan and the Holy Field ear off. We you know what to do with that. Can you imagine if the ref would just put it back on there and it's just good? Even in his humanity, his glory is still But the action that Jesus takes is not fighting, it's pleading. He waited for the mob to arrive. He waited to be arrested. He waited, really, ultimately, for God's plan to be fulfilled. Look at me at the end of verse 49. Jesus says they're very funny. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. That's what he was waiting on. More was happening than just some disciples sleeping in weakness or one of the 12 acting in wickedness or in mobs arresting the Son of God. God was acting too. God was acting in accordance to what he had already prophesied. God was doing precisely what he said he would do to save the world. He said it centuries before. Here, Jesus is Remember what he's been teaching since Mark chapter 8, verse 31. I'll be that for you. And he, Jesus, began to teach him that the Son of Man, as Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise and eat. Well, where did Jesus get that from? Well, he got that from the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And in his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to become righteous, to be a character righteous, he shall bear their indignities, their sins. Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O Lord, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. 
Jesus had just quoted that verse back in verse 27 during the supper. All that God had prophesied in the Old Testament was being completed down to the disciples deserting him when he is arrested and stricken and pierced and crushed. Notice Mark 14, verse 50 says, and they all left him and fled, just as God had said centuries before. And notice the scene in verses 51 and 52, that funny description of a, a young disciple running away with no clothes. Tradition tells us that's probably Mark himself. You're left with this question. We consider the Son of God arrested, killed on the cross, betrayed, risen from the grave. Do we run away from him in unbelief? Or do we run to him in faith? They scattered, not yet knowing. We have the completed story. He was crucified, yes, but three days later he rose. And some days after that, he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And before he ascended, he promised that he would come again in glory and gather his people from the four corners of the earth. And he would bring us finally and forever into his kingdom, which does not perish, which does not fade, which cannot be challenged. My friend, if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. I will tell you, we run as consequences. Who you run with and who you run to as If you run away from Jesus this morning and continue unbelief, if you have heard God's will for you this morning, that you repent of sin and believe in him, but you have looked at it and said, oh, that looks like it's going to hurt because I don't want to give up this sin. I don't want to give up this relationship. I don't want to submit. I want to live my own life. If that's you this morning, you're in your own Gethsemane. You're in your own agony. You're in your own situation when you are standing between God's righteous will for your life, even though it hurts, and what appears to you to be a wider, smoother path, even though it leads to death. Who are you going to choose this morning? You're in the valley of decision. Will you choose Jesus? Will you choose something else? The consequence of choosing something else, the Bible tells us, is that if you will die choosing something else, you will face God, not as our Father, but as righteous judge. And all of your sins will not have been laid upon Christ on the cross, where they are atoned for and taken away, but on the day of judgment, all of your sins will be laid to your account. You will suffer for them instead of Jesus. Is an eternity cast away from God, suffering his wrath forever. Whatever gives you pause this morning, I hope the thing that gives you the most pause is the possibility of eternity forever. Giving up whatever makes you hesitate to follow Jesus. It's a small thing to give up and suffer compared to suffering forever. God's back. If you come to Jesus this morning, 
You need never fear God's wrath. You need never fear God's judgment because of your sins, because Jesus has paid for it all. All of God's anger has been poured out in the Son of God so that all of those who trust in him, we come to God. He is our Abba. He is our Father. We are accepted by him. All we ever need to look forward to from God is love, is grace, is his presence with us, and his power for us. If, if you come to Jesus, you, you get God in full, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and you get an eternal life to enjoy him. Just this passing life and it's fading pleasures. It's in the presence of God there is pleasure for that's what God offers you. He offers you himself and he offers you joy with himself. Hope that he's that. Receive that. Believe in Jesus. Submit your will to his and follow. Follow him. Right into life. And beloved, if we are Christians, I just want to exhort us. Do not deserve the faith. Keep going. In the weakness of the flesh, keep going. In the willingness of the spirit, keep going. Do not turn back. See what you perhaps say at your baptism. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Do not give up. You will reap, beloved, if you do not faint. You will reap if you do not faint. All you do is stand. All you do is continue. All you do is hold on. In fact, it's God who is giving you the ability to stand. He's giving you the power to the whole Lord. Do it in faith. Whatever you do, don't turn from Jesus. Don't turn from the faith. Don't turn to other ideas and other saviors. Don't turn to yourself. Keep turning to God. He will not fail you. He will not forsake you. He's not one of our little raggedy commands. He's not. And he is also the same. I'll give you one last application. Suffer for Jesus. Suffer for him. He suffered for us that we might be saved. Now it may be that it's the Father's will, as Peter puts it, that we suffer for him to bring him forward. Resolve in him to suffer as a Christian call. If that's the way to do Whatever form it takes, whatever time it comes, however inconvenient, however sharp, however long lasting, while we are in our right minds, let us pray to God and ask Him for grace to suffer well, that His Son might be glorified, magnified, who seem to be working and that we might receive the importance. You see, Jesus in Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. He faced suffering for us. Let us pray the same. And perhaps we can suffer for this. Those who agree. We will all have moments when we can be as weak as the disciples, sleeping in the dark of Gethsemane. We may even have some moments like the Lord's when we are in agony about God's will, suffering and being involved. May God give us grace never to be like Jesus. May we believe never so long the Lord who gave his life for us.
May God grant us grace to know that Jesus shared our humanity, all our frailty and weakness, so that he can become for us a perfect high priest. May we go to him, our high priest, in our time of need, asking for help, praying a prayer that led to our salvation. Not my will, but that. That's right. Father, we thank you for these moving scenes in Gethsemane. For this intense spiritual moment. The Son of God asked you for another way. When you answered his prayer, you were silence. And in that silence, your plan to save us is being fulfilled. We thank you for what Jesus endured for sinners. We thank you for what he accomplished on the cross. We thank you for the glory of his resurrection. We thank you for the promise of his coming. We ask the Lord, by the grace of your spirit, make us part. Lift our eyes that we might be older than you, split the sky. Lift our hearts that we might be ready to wait when he comes. Fill us with anticipation of the eternal kingdom and everlasting glory. And let us be friends to one another, meek and holy. Let us accept one another, encourage one another, and help each other make our way to glory through the shores that we receive. Unless we be too, Lord, comfortable. Come quickly and gather the church. In Jesus' name.